Okay. Okay, but did they explain to you what we're doing next? Did anyone tell you? Not really? Okay. So the doctors decided that it's best for you to get a little straw in your hand or your arm. It's called an IV. Okay. So we're going to put that in. That way we can take some blood from your body and then we can also give your body medicine or water if it needs to. So the first thing that your nurse, Miss Kimberly, is going to do is tie a big rubber band on your arm to make sure she can find the best spot to put the little straw. Okay. Okay. No. Okay. So this is our medicine we're going to use so you don't really feel the straw going in. Okay. There's no poke on it. It's pretty much air that pushes medicine on your skin. Um, that way it makes your skin kind of fall asleep in that little spot. So when we put the straw in, it's kind of asleep and you don't feel it. It doesn't feel like a big pinch. The only thing about this medicine is it makes a really big sound. Have you ever had soda before at your house? Yes. Yes. Have you ever had opened the can of soda? Yes. What does that sound like? Is it kind of loud? Yeah. Kind of sounds like a psh, right? That's the kind of sound that this medicine makes. It gets loud, right? A little loud, yeah. So a lot of kids sometimes do a little jump because it, it's a little scary, um, but it doesn't hurt. Okay. Okay. And then I just take my friend alcohol here and just do a little clean, clean, clean. Okay. And then I pull this down and then ready? I'm going to go three, two, one. And we're all going to go together, okay? <laughs> and it's just going to be a spray of water, okay? Three, two, two one. one. And that was it. Hmm. Okay. Was that louder than you thought it was or okay? I don't know. Yeah, we need <laughs> Not All too right. bad. Now just rub it in and give that a little time to work. What you just heard was a recording of our own child life and pediatric nurse team prepping for an IV in a child. And you may notice that that was a very different experience than what you may be used to in your own ED. And that's because these two experts recognize and address the pain and anxiety children feel in the emergency department every day. As you all know, the ED is a stressful place for children. Heck, it's stressful for adults. <laughs> and pain contributes to how they experience the ED. There are many ways that we can help make the process easier and less painful that do not include opioids. That is what we are discussing today. And the cool thing is this podcast episode is a co-production of the EIIC, also known as the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center. The EIIC's mission is to minimize morbidity and mortality of acutely ill and injured children across the emergency continuum. Yeah, and the EIIC creates pediatric toolkits for EDs and EMS to optimize our care of kids, and pain and sedation is one of those toolkits. This podcast is a part of that toolkit, but go to the EIIC website to find more resources for your practice. This is EM Pulse with your host, Sarah Medeiros, and my mom, Julia Magana. Please don't hurt me. Today, we talk with a UC Davis pediatric emergency nurse and local champion for kids, Kimberly Wheatley, and UC Davis ED child life specialist, Katie Finan. In addition, because this is a topic near and dear to Julia's heart, I'll interview her to get her perspective. Why is it important to identify a child that's in pain beyond the obvious it hurts? 
for me personally, I think the most important reason to take it seriously is because kids often won't verbalize that they're in pain because they're afraid that verbalizing that now means something painful is coming to fix it like a needle. And so I think it's really important as a nurse to facilitate a relationship of trust with these kids that it's okay to say that you're in pain and that we're going to do our best to alleviate that pain, but also to make this experience better for you that so you feel better speaking up because kids won't say anything. And then, you know, these problems go untreated. And then it also changes the way they seek care as an adult if they're associated in the hospital with just pain. It's like they just won't have it addressed. We had a kiddo actually together, Kim, that had a new diagnosis of cancer. And she came in and I was so acutely aware that this was her introduction for a very long time, for a very complicated course to us as a medical community. And it was so important that those first moments went well. Well, that's true actually with every kid that walks through the door because this is for a lot of them their introduction to the emergency department. And if they learn up front that this is scary, that this is painful, that we leave them in pain, then maybe they won't come in until they really, really need help later on in life. Or, you know, just like with the dentist, people don't go to the dentist because they're scared of the pain and then they let it get beyond where it's healthy for their teeth. So I think that kind of illustrates why it's so important that we create a comfortable environment for kids and and that we address that they're in pain. It doesn't mean that you take away all of their pain, that there's no way to go through this without any pain at all, but you at least identify it and address it. I think it also explains some behavior, too. So sometimes it helps you understand why a child is acting a certain way or there's certain behaviors happening because maybe there is untreated pain or there's something else going on that will help us better understand and explain those behaviors. So we all agree it's important to identify, but what are some of the challenges of identifying pain in children? I think a lot of kids will actually fear more pain then. So if I tell you the truth and I tell you, yeah, my stomach really hurts, that what are you going to do to me? Does that mean I get a shot? Does that mean I have to take medicine? I don't like to take medicine. And I've had plenty of kids in the middle of procedures, you know, when we're explaining we're doing this because you're feeling really sick and we need to find out why and we need to help your body feel better. And they say, well, I feel better now. I feel all better because they don't want whatever we're about to do. And so you have to think about the motivation behind what they're saying and and why they might be saying it, but also believing them. I think we're going to touch on that a lot today of, of believing patient report, but why they might deny it suddenly out of nowhere, why their report might change. Those types of things are also really important. How do you get past that to recognize or identify that they actually are in pain? I think a lot of it is probably behavior. And I think Kim might have some good, like, physical indicators that you look for. Yeah, I think when it comes to kids, the challenges, there's different ranges, of course, with age. So how a two-year-old presents with pain is not going to be how a 10-year-old presents with pain or how a teenager presents with pain. And a lot of times I find that, especially that toddler age, can be really difficult to get them to verbalize, one, what they're feeling, let alone where they're feeling it and how it feels. And so sometimes they'll just sit there quietly in the bed a little afraid to interact with you again because they know that if they tell you what's wrong, then what comes after it may be a needle. Research has shown that needle sticks are the the number one fear that kids have when coming to the doctors or their hospital. And so if they're afraid that speaking up causes that, they kind of just tend to shrink in bed, you know, next to parent and not really want to talk. And then it's the parents that's telling you for the kids. 
I think some of the challenges that I see are what you guys are talking about, the developmental spectrum that we see, right? Like identifying pain in an infant is different than identifying pain in a teenager. And one teenager may show pain in, with anger. Another may show it by being really quiet and not responding. And another may tell you very clearly, I have eight out of 10 pain in my elbow that it feels like sharp. But, you know, like they have all of the words. The other challenge is that kids are just being introduced to pain. So this child with a stubbed toe may be the worst pain. That may be 10 out of 10 pain to them because they have not had it. I know when I had my <laughs> middle child, I was introduced to the pain of labor. And I was like, oh, now I have a new 10 out of 10. It totally reset my scale. And they haven't had this catalog of experiences in their life to really be able to understand thankfully, what severe pain is. So you and I may think severe pain is labor or your arm is cut off on the ground beside you because we've literally seen that. But to them, stub toe is severe pain because that's the worst pain that they've ever had. The other challenge that we run into and why it's important to quantify this pain is our own biases, right? our expectations of what pain feels like or our cultural expectations or other biases that creep into how we treat patients. We know that we have biases. And so using an objective score that can be used in infants, a separate one for toddlers, and then a separate one for teenagers. And then, like you said, Katie, believing what the patient says is really, really important. And then reassessing that pain each step of the way to make sure that we're adequately addressing it. And that takes out some of the space for our biases. One big thing I, I remember that I taught when I was doing some education for our new peds nurses was not to tell them what they felt. So even if we use lidocaine for that procedure, I always finish by what did that feel like? Did that hurt? Did that hurt a lot or a little bit? Instead of saying, oh, that didn't hurt. So maybe whatever you saw led you to believe maybe it didn't hurt. But if their perspective is that it still hurt, then we need to validate that. And, oh, I'm really sorry that that hurt. Uh, maybe next time we try something different, what do you think would help you next time? Or giving them the words, because like you said, the different age groups developmentally, their verbal skills and their language development is different. So being able to name, yeah, you look very uncomfortable or that's that's very tight, isn't it? Or naming what that is, what that feels like to them and help giving them the language, not putting words in their mouth, but helping them to identify what they're feeling. Right. Because right now, all they have is pain or ouchie. You know, I see that with nausea too, right? Kids come in and say that they're in pain. They have abdominal pain. And you're like, uh, that's nausea that you're feeling. <laughs> you just haven't had that experience yet. You don't have that language to be able to describe it and differentiate between it. I love that educational component. I also think one of the challenges when you're dealing with pediatrics and identifying pain is the dynamic between the child and the parent or caregiver. Sometimes caregivers force upon the child this need to be stoic, where the kid's not allowed to show pain. And then there are other times when the parent is hyper, uh, I guess, reactive, and the child will feed off of that. And then now, you know, they went from being okay to crying because now the parent's talking about what the kid's going through. So there's an interesting dynamic into how the caregiver that's there at the bedside with the child actually plays into how the pain can present sometimes, or how the child present, I would say. For those kids who are old enough, do you find some of the tools that we use, do you find those helpful, like the FACES tool? 
I think if it's explained well enough, yes, I definitely think so. I think we don't always explain anything well enough to kids in the hospital, either assuming they can't understand it, they're too young to understand it, or teenagers, they they already understand, right? They're pretty much mini adults is what a lot of people treat them as, but they're still in the in-between. So making sure that we're educating them on what we're asking them and that we're using like the appropriate language too. So often I watch assessments of pain, maybe with a provider that doesn't have a lot of experience with children and the verbiage that's used, a child is not going to understand. So using the familiar verbiage that they're used to. So do we call them owies at home? Are they ouchies? Are they boo-boos? Whatever it is, instead of saying, do you have pain here? Um, is your owie really bad? Is your owie like this or that? Or using the kind of language that they're familiar with. There are validated scales for different ages. So for infants, the R-FLAC, revised FLAC score, is good. And that's an observational tool. And then as we move to, like, the toddlers and mostly preschool age kids, then they're able to move into the FACES score, which uses a visual representation of how they're feeling. And then as you move into teenagers and, you know, older elementary, we tend to use more the numeric scale on a scale of 1 to 10. And again, that's relative to each child. That's more just for understanding, for hearing and appreciating the degree that that child is experiencing pain. You know, it may not be 10 out of 10 labor pain, But to them, this is really severe, and therefore we need to address that. And we need to re-quantify it again. And I think it's most important is making sure that you're using the appropriate scales, because even though like a four-year-old may know his numbers, one through 10, you have to have an understanding of greater or less than to know that 10 is worse than one. And so it's about making sure that for a four-year-old, you're actually still using the face scale before asking, you know, the one to 10 scale. So when you use appropriately, I think that the tools that we have to quantify pain are actually very helpful. Talk to me more about identifying pain in infants because I find this so difficult. I find it actually always funny, too, because parents will come in and say, oh, I think, you know, their stomach hurts. I'm like, so how did the three-month-old tell you this? (laughs) You know, Um, and I think a lot of times it really is this, in infants, for me, in my experience, an inconsolable type crying. So you know, nothing is consoling this kid. And sometimes it's colic, but if the kid is just, you know, mom picks him up, mom tries breastfeeding, and the kid is just crying no matter what. Or sometimes it's this intermittent body change where, like, the kid is just lying there, and all of a sudden they pull in, start crying and screaming, and then they're relaxed and no longer crying and screaming. So a lot of times with the infants, for me, it's it's visual. And then also how consolable is this child as an indicator of what their pain is like. You touched on it there, too, about parents that they come in saying, I think their stomach hurts. Parents are the expert on their child, and they know what's typical and what's not. And trusting their report of if a parent says, this is not typical, this is not how my child acts, I truly believe something is wrong here, that we listen to that because they know them better than we do. I had a child the other day that was completely inconsolable, not an infant, but I think she was five or six, and we were so concerned, like, oh my gosh, she must be in this like unimaginable pain. And mom said, no, she acts like this all the time. She acts like this when she goes to school. She does this to come home from school. And I was like, oh, (laughs) okay. And then some of our fears, I think, were eased a little bit. But I definitely, even of of all age groups, ask parents like what's typical and and what they think because they know that kid day in and day out. 
And then for infants, we have the revised FLAC score, which is an observational tool, and we should be using in our infants to be as objective as we can. And that's the FLAC stands for face, legs, activity, cry, and consolability, <laughs> what you were talking about, Kimberly, right? Um, and then we give them a score on a one to three level. And that's just another way to be able to objectively do that. Now, how do you differentiate between I'm anxious, I'm out of mom's arms, I'm cold, I'm hungry. That's where the challenge really lies. And honestly, there's a lot of overlap between those things, right? Like if you're hungry, you're going to feel that pain more. If you're anxious, you're going to feel that pain more. So I try to look objectively at what are the things in front of me. If there's a broken bone and the kid is crying, I am going to assume that that child is in pain and treat that pain accordingly, right? It's when there's like the belly pain and some of those other stuff that I think it gets a little bit harder. But I try to take care of all of those other things, the anxiety, the hunger, if I can, you know, having parents at bedside to help them to console distraction and describing things as I'm going along so that I can eliminate those other variables and then focus in on the pain a little bit more. Yeah, that's super helpful. I mean, how reliable is my ability as a provider to look at a patient and tell whether they're in pain? I think it's a combination of all of these things. I think it can't be just your, you know, clinical opinion because, like I said, I messed up the other day of like, oh, she seems like she's in a lot, a lot of pain, um, whereas per mom, it was more anxiety. So we definitely treated some pain. But I think it's a combination of what you're seeing physically, what report they're giving you, and then the like evidence-based scales, too. It's a relationship between you and the parent. It's asking, again, like she said, is this normal for this baby? And then also just taking the time. You know, some kids, if they're older, you can just kind of walk by the room and say, oh, that kid's in pain. With infants, you kind of have to watch them for a while and to see how the parent or caregiver tries to console them. And are any of these methods working? You know, is this kid rigidly crying? And no matter what mom does, this kid is just screaming their head off. Or once mom starts breastfeeding, this kid is now relaxed and quiet. So sometimes it just takes standing in the room for a while and seeing and trying all these different things to see, okay, this kid was just angry. This kid was just hungry. This kid was just cold versus nothing we are doing is helping this kid. Mom is just normal. And then working with the parents as a collaborative effort to try and figure out what is really going on. I mean, I think that we frankly kind of stuck at it. There was a study that looked at the observational tools that we use, like the FLAC, and then we had kids after surgery identify what their own pain level was, and we underscored their pain to what how they perceived it. The key point is that we need to be as objective as we can. We need to believe the patients. And PCARN has twice now identified that we inadequately treat fracture and abdominal pain in non-white children. We need to do better. We must do better. I think that's extremely important because I know we all have these sickle cell patients that will come in and their children. And on the outside, they're apparently extremely stoic. And yet when you ask them, you know, their pain will be a 10 out of 10. And sometimes providers will be reluctant to address the 10 out of 10 pain. So they're like, oh, that kid's lying comfortable in bed. I'm like, well, I don't know what it's like to have sickle cell, but if this kid is telling me he's a 10 out of 10 pain, I believe he's a 10 out of 10 pain. He knows his disease, like he's saying he's in pain. And I'm sure that dates back to, the, you know, the history of believing that Black people had different pain receptors and, you know, we just didn't have the same level of pain. And so it's just trying to dispel all those myths and really rethink about how our biases and how we approach pain and all the patients and making sure that everyone actually is believed. Yeah. 
And what does that do for that patient later if they're not believed, right? Are they going to come back? Are they going to seek care? Do they trust us? Right. No. Why would they? I've had a lot of children with sickle cell who were having hard times transitioning out of the pediatric hospital into the adult care because they go to the adult world. And now they're just looked at these drug-seeking people of color versus they, so they would have a hard time. They would come back to the pediatric facility where they were believed and got the pain meds because they knew if they went to the adult center, then they don't feel like the care they're getting is equal. So it is like really important that we do it, but that we do it across the board, you know, and continue that as well. Let's talk about chronic pain, like sickle cell pain or other types of chronic pain. How do you approach that differently? For me personally, I know, especially with the new diagnoses, I try to make everything especially easy and pain-free because I know they're going to have to come back frequently. And I had a child who was not long diagnosed with diabetes and didn't want to tell mom that she was in DKA at nine years old because she had what mom described as a terrible experience with IVs last time she was here. And that's why I'm so adamant about making that process better for the kids because when you have a long course of care ahead, I'm like, this is life and death. This kid is not going to tell her mom when she's sick. And she literally told her mom, I would rather die. And so it's so important what we do at the bedside to make sure that these kids feel that it is okay to seek medical treatment. We are here to help you and that we are doing our best to make sure that this is easier for you. And just because something is painful doesn't mean it has to be painful. And if we can change that, I think that's our biggest role as a nurse or as a child life is to help these kids who have these long-term medical diseases feel comfortable coming here and seeking care. Because if not, then it's just a long road for themselves and parents and puts them at risk. And you're speaking specifically to procedure-related pain. Yes, procedure-related pain, yes. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. From my perspective, child life, moving into more chronic pain, we start focusing on teaching different types of coping skills, figuring out what works for that kid. Here at UC Davis, we have Reiki, which is really, really awesome. And we've had a lot of success in regards to kids with chronic pain, teaching parents how to do Reiki on their children. You can even learn how to do it on yourself, as well as like virtual reality, guided imagery, meditation. I've used meditation myself. And these things are kind of much more readily available than they used to be. Deep breathing. We have tricks for younger kids about, you know, blowing the pain away. Um, different things like that. Things that they could take home with them, too. Things that they can use even without us. I know my goal as child life is to not necessarily be needed in anything. I like when a kid has their whole coping plan and how they do things. And I'm not even needed in it because... That's the goal is to empower them to be able to do these things and to know how they cope, what works best for them. I think for me as a physician, I start by asking them to tell me about their pain and what's different today. So I typically ask them to categorize as like mild, moderate, severe, and really how is it impacting their activities and school is a really key piece. I also ask them to look back and kind of think about what has helped for them in the past. And I look back in our records and see if I can identify what is helpful. It's not incumbent upon that patient to know what their pain plan is. It should be incumbent upon us to come up with a good pain plan for these kids that have chronic pain. And ideally, that should be driven by the primary care doctor. I also try to understand what a successful visit looks like to them because no pain is probably not likely in chronic pain, right? But I want to find out what would be helpful 
today. And I'm a big fan of setting expectations. Like you said, distractions, even things, healthy things like regular exercise, progressive muscle relaxation, counseling, ice, warm packs, acupuncture, all of these things. This is kind of when we're in the kitchen sink status um, from my perspective. And let's come back to procedure-related pain. What can you do to address procedure-related pain? I think for me, in my practice, addressing procedural-related pain is definitely collaborative effort with the parents. Like, I specifically will always ask mom or dad, like, or whoever's the best, like, how involved would you like to be? And I would encourage them to either, like, stand next to the bed, be on the bed with the patient, because this idea of this child laying on the bed by themselves and parents standing off in the background, and now the kid is experiencing this alone, I think it needs to be a rapport between the kid and and the child, I mean, the child and the parent that you're here to help me through this and you will be by my side for this. So I always incorporate the parent. And a good example is the other day I had a mom who told me, oh, it took three people to hold them down and they had to wrap them up. I was like, okay, mom, we're going to try something different today. And I got mom to sit on the bed with the patient and I did it by myself. But I'm like, there are different ways to do things and you heighten the pain and you heighten the uh, the sensitivity and the anxiety the kid has to these procedures when you start taking the parent and shoving them aside and then laying the kid down and wrapping them up. I'm like, that's completely unnecessary. That's not in my practice. You won't see me do it. The best way to do it is to have the parent as involved as they can. And people will sometimes push back and say, oh, you can't have the parent. You have to coach them. All it takes is explaining and understanding. And I have yet to have a parent who either will walk away from the bedside or refuse it. Because once you explain it to them and the parent, it just works out better for everyone. And an experience isn't so upsetting. And sometimes parents want to hold. And I usually tell them no, because I don't want them to be part of the painful experience. Your job is not to hold your child. Your job is to support your child. If we need extra help, then I'll have a staff member. But your job as your parent is to be here and support your child to this procedure to make it less anxiety ridden for them. I love you (laughs) (laughs) so i think often at least the biggest barrier for me in addressing procedure pain is how quickly people want to get things done and i think we're always in a rush which some things absolutely are emergencies never would i stop a code and ask you to use lidocaine you know like i i think that's within reason but there's almost always time for pain management almost every single situation and i think a lot of it is rush we bring on our own rush um and it's a lot of a lot of times people maybe who aren't used to kids or who don't think about the effects of what that pain will do as as a patient gets older and along with their care as they get older but i think taking the extra minute and individualizing a plan it has such a huge impact i know one time dr morgania and i had a child who just needed a nasal swab. That was the only thing we needed. And I will always remember this because we thought about doing intranasal Versed to help calm this patient before they had a lot of special needs. Um, and there was a lot of concerns that the family had about how they were going to get him care throughout his life. He, it was very hard to get to the hospital. He had Down syndrome. I think he had autism. He had a lot of things going on and was was fighting his grandma, didn't even want to come to the hospital because he was so terrified um, of pain, right? So we made a plan that instead of doing um, intranasal Versed, we would do oral Versed because he took oral medication from grandma easily and wait the extra time. So how much of a rush are we in to make this a more positive experience that's going to affect her and him 
for the years to come. Um, and she was willing to wait the time. Dr. Morgani was willing to order the different medication um, and make it work so that it wasn't extra traumatic. Um, but it takes being creative and it takes people caring to do that and to have the conversations and consider other alternatives. Um, and it's also sometimes attitudes of people just have to learn how to do this and you know, they're, they're going to have to grow up and learn how to get pokes without anything anyway. And my answer to that is why? Why do we have the attitude that people just have to tough it out? If we have things that help with pain, why do we not use them? Why can adults not use them? Like, what is the real reason? And I think sometimes it's just a bias or just a cultural attitude that we have that people just need to toughen up and kids have to toughen up. And, oh, they're 12 years old. They don't need any numbing. Well, why not? Like, why do they not need numbing? And let's have a bigger conversation about that. Yeah, I think that that's really key is that we do have tools. And there is no part of this conversation, by the way, that is saying everybody needs opiates to be able to get an IV, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about jet-injected lidocaine that throws uses compressed gas to put lidocaine one to three millimeters intradermal so that you can numb up that area. Or you use topical LMX, or you use Buzzy the Bee vibratory sensation, or you use uh, vapo coolant. You know, like there are a lot of cheap tools that are out there that don't take up much time, are incredibly affordable, and can really make a difference in these procedures that we do with these kiddos. Um, and we just need to be intentional. And the other thing that I would say for procedure-related pain is, um, first and foremost, I think we as physicians and clinicians need to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with this information? How important is this? Do I really need a CBC and a BMP on a three-month-old or a, let's say a 13-month-old that's thrown up three times, right? Like, is that really going to change what I'm doing here? Or do I have an alternative plan? And what do I need to do and why? Because that, I think, could reduce a lot of painful procedures <laughs> to begin with. And then when it comes to the actual procedure itself, we need to be intentional about reducing pain as much as we can. And I think as nurses... Um, and I say that just because typically we're the ones primarily doing uh, the painful procedures. We have to really let go of our own biases and what it is we feel. Um, a lot of times you'll hear nurses express, oh, well, they're going to cry anyway. Well, and I always say to that, okay. And I tell mama that I can't take away the anxiety, but I can take away the pain. Just because they're crying is not an excuse to not use pain mitigation. And like I said, if you know what a needle feels like, then you can't tell someone who has had a needle before that this isn't going to hurt. But you can show them that it won't hurt. So if you have, again, it doesn't make a difference whether you said it's a lidocaine, J-tip, cold spray, use something. I even usually typically use a barrier between the skin and a tourniquet now. So I'll take a baby blanket and put that in between a tourniquet and skin because that pinches so much. And that just takes away. So the very first step before you even do anything painful with a needle is now lessened and dampened because now you have a barrier between a tourniquet and the uh, the skin, and then that makes them less anxious because now they're not like, oh my gosh, screaming, it hurt, it pinches. And so anything you can do to decrease the pain is always worth it. But we have to take a step back and not be in such a rush and then not say that just because a kid's crying is a reason to not use something, which I, I often hear. You guys have touched on this as well, but what are some non 
medicinal things that we can do to help pain at different ages. So babies, preschoolers, older kids, teenagers. I think for babies, starting at babies, we do a lot of oral sucrose, the sweetie solution. Breastfeeding is a comfort and I think does reduce pain. Um, I've seen you, Kim, do a lot of breastfeeding during IV placements, um, especially if they don't take a pacifier and can't take sweeties or, you know, can't take it as well. Then we choose to do breastfeeding for the procedure. And that's in, you know, mom's arms or dad's arms as well. So you're adding the comfort, um, like you said, swaddling just comforting touch. I do that a lot. I think even last night we had um, a 23-month-old and he started rubbing my arm like it was his little self-soothing. And I can't tell you how much his demeanor changed after that, after he just got close and he just cuddled up. Like he just wanted some comfort, some physical comfort from like a safe adult at that time because mom and dad weren't there. So providing that for them opportunities for distraction, I would say, for toddler and up, Uh, different coping techniques for like teenagers, um, stress ball, different release opportunities to release tension. What else would you say, Kim? I think the child life is really good at uh, approaching these kids and getting them age-appropriate things. I do a lot of, you know, bubbles. I'll say bubbles for your troubles for like, you know, the toddler age and uh, ask them if they have a favorite movie to try and put a movie on or a cartoon. Parents at the bedside, really close to them, and just kind of see what they want to play um, as well, I think, work really well. And then for teenagers, sometimes it's just discussions like, what are you afraid about? And actually just talking to them and really just kind of getting an understanding of where their head is at that that stage. So I think it's it's multifactorial, but like I said, it's also developmental in terms of stages, in terms of how do you approach each situation. Yeah, I would say for infants, I 100% agree with your tracks. I would add to that comforting touch, um, skin-to-skin contact. Um, They do that really well now in labor and delivery. Why can't we do that on a two-week-old that comes in with a fever, right? Um, They're still with inside of that time frame that it's super comforting. So I like skin-to-skin contact if the family's okay with it. For the preschoolers, it's definitely keeping family at bedside is a non-medicinal way to engage uh, and help with their pain. Um, Positions of comfort, I'm a really big fan of those. That's a new thing that's in my practice, and that's utilizing a caregiver or even a staff member can do it, honestly, that can hold the child in a number of comfort positions that don't interfere with the procedures. And then rocking the child after the procedure Vibratory stimulation is an interesting thing. Buzzy the Bee is one of the products that uses that, and they use both cold and vibratory stimulation. The vapo coolant to those specific areas is something else that we can do. And then I like warm packs or cool packs, and sometimes I'll even put it on the contralateral extremity or the opposite side of wherever the pain is hurting to kind of trick that brain. And then as they become older, I think choices and helping them to engage in their own care is a really key piece of all of this. I think when you give choices, you're also giving control is really what you're doing, allowing them opportunities for control. And then when we get to meds, what are your go-tos for mild, moderate, severe pain? So for me, for mild pain, you know, Tylenol, NSAIDs like ibuprofen is probably one of the more common ones. Those are my 
places to go to when it comes to medications. And then as we move into moderate pain, I'm a really big fan of using the intranasal route over an IV or an IM. So I like intranasal fentanyl if I need that or um, oxycodone, liquid version or oral version um, as they become teenagers, lidocaine patches, um, and then Toradol IV or IM is another option. And then for severe pain, now we are in the opiates, you know, IV fentanyl, IV morphine. Um, I will tell you what I do not use, and that is codeine and tramadol. <laughs> I don't use that at all. We have a lot of data now showing that metabolism of these medications is genetically determined by P450. And some kids metabolize really, really quickly, and it doesn't work at all. And some metabolize really, really slowly. And then you have respiratory depression. Either way, it is not great for pain control. And when you compare it to Tylenol and ibuprofen, it is not superior anyways. So why would I use something that doesn't work or puts kids in danger when it's not even a superior choice. So please take that out of your Pixis. That should not be an option that you use for pain controlling kids. In adults, we use a lot of ketamine. Is that something that you do much with kids? That's a great question. I mean, you know, in the emergency department, we're always looking for ways to use vitamin ketamine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, it is not something that we're using on a regular basis in our emergency department, but I am seeing more and more studies. I feel like every month there's a new study that's out there that's exploring how ketamine can be used. Um, And certainly for painful procedures, I absolutely use it, um, even quasi painful procedures, I may use it as a an adjunct for what for helping with the pain control during that procedure, even when I don't need a full dissociative state. And then I just admitted a kid uh, the other day that was getting admitted to the PICU for a ketamine infusion um, and was going to need monitoring for some chronic long-term pain that he had. So yeah, it is absolutely something. And it's I think it's one of those things that we all need to keep an eye on because there's going to be more and more uses for it moving forward. Okay, wrapping up here, what is your favorite go-to tip to help a child in pain? If I have a child in what appears to be a lot of pain, my go-to is always reducing stimulation. And I think Kim touched on it earlier. I turn the lights off. We do soothing music, whatever we can to make the environment more comfortable. And I notice a huge difference, even sometimes just like shutting the door. And so they can't see the commotion and hear all of the other things. I know that when I'm in pain or even extreme anxiety or whatever it is, extra sounds, extra lights, all of that is just too much. Um, And it's so overstimulating. So that's kind of my go-to usually. And especially making sure like the parent is in there with them and we are not the familiar people. So put mom in that room with them, reduce that, all that stimulation. And often I see it um, benefit the child. I would say my, I don't necessarily have a go-to because it depends on age, but usually the, when it comes to the younger kid, it's definitely parental involvement. Like a lot of times you will get the kid in the room and parents want to sit on the chair and put the kid in the gurney. I'm like, no mom, no dad, get in the bed with the child, make them feel more comfortable. I'm like, this whole thing is scary for them. There's now, especially during COVID, we have masks on. These kids can't see our faces. We're a bunch of strangers. There's no smiles. And so it's just really important for them to have like the familiar face that they know right next to them in bed to help just create an environment where they at least feel comfortable. And then again, if pain is the issue, pain can be truly assessed. But without even just getting comfortable, there's just no way of getting anything past that for most of these kids. 
I think my favorite tip for painful procedures would be first asking, is this necessary? (laughs) I mean, do we even need it at all? And and then if you do, what are you going to do with that test or procedure? And how is this going to change the outcomes? I think is really important. I think in our goal of efficiency, we sometimes place IVs or do things because that's what we do in adults. But asking yourself first, do I have to do this painful procedure and why is really important. And then um, the other thing that I see our nurses do very frequently and I think is important is batching those painful procedures. I see our nurses do this all the time, and it makes sense from both a medication administration. If we're going to be intentional about giving intranasal Versed or if we're going to give some other medicine to be able to help with that procedure, let's batch them all together so that we can give one medicine one time and kind of group everything. And it also makes sense from a flow standpoint. Then you're not coming in and out and waiting for things to happen. For actual pain control itself, I would say my favorite tip is use an objective tool and believe the patient. Thank you all for what you do with these kiddos. And it's been a pleasure talking with you today. And now I've got some great tips to take back to the ED. All right, well, let's leave the discussion there. You know, Julia, I work a lot of ped shifts and I see kiddos pretty regularly, and these are really practical tips. I think my favorite trick to reduce peds pain is YouTube videos, and <laughs> Baby Shark is gold. Oh my goodness, it's, I feel like Baby Shark is the soundtrack of my shifts. <laughs> I love it. You know, Sarah, it is an honor to care for these kiddos, and we introduce them to the medical system and what to expect. Do we want going to the ED to be like going to the dentist, or can we be better? A little creativity and a smidge of intention can really change the tone of our emergency department encounters. Pulse check. Pediatric pain is worse when the child is anxious, hungry, alone, or even anticipating pain. We can do better when we use objective scores and believe the patient. Ask yourself, do I really need to do this painful procedure? How is this going to change my plan? Is there an alternative way to get this information or to accomplish that goal that may be less painful or scary? Give choices. Engage the parents in the process. And reduce stimulation. So what's your favorite tip for helping kids with pain? Share it with us on social media at Impulse Podcast. To learn more about the Emergency Medical Services for Children's Innovation and Improvement Center, visit emscimprovement.center. Thank you to our department for investing in a child-friendly ED. And thank you to OM Productions for making all of this possible, and to Jordan Magania for being our patient in this case. See y'all next time when we'll talk about PrEP with Dr. Mike Kasner.